movement is a sign of life. A heart beats, blood flows, eyes blink, uh, lungs inflate, muscles and joints work together, and movement happens. Sometimes that movement is beautiful, graceful, powerful, like a, like a ballerina's pirouette or the slam dunk by your favorite college basketball player. Or sometimes that movement is painful and agonizingly slow, like a wounded warrior going through rehab. In any case, movement means life. If some part of you isn't moving, then it's time for your relatives to cash in that life insurance policy. Movement is also part of the spiritual life. God wants to bring movement in our relationship with Him. Moving from that old life, that old self that's crippled by sin, to a new life, a a new self where we experience His grace and then live for Him through faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so our relationship with Christ isn't isn't a static thing. It isn't frozen. It isn't rigid or stiff. Faith is a living thing. The Apostle Paul describes uh, this relationship with God in his speech to the philosophers of ancient Athens. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Faith in God is alive and in motion. During this season of Lent, we've been looking into the Psalms to see some of the areas where God wants to bring movement into our lives, from from stress to blessed, from grumbling to gratitude, from fear to faith, from rejected to accepted, from problem to opportunity, and today our final movement, from pointless to purposed. I'm going to be reading from Psalm 22, a poem by King David, put to music and sung by worshipers in ancient Israel. It's a song of two movements. The first movement is a, is a lament about abandonment and, and suffering. But halfway through, it switches gears. And the second movement is about hope and triumph. I'm going to read just the first movement, the first 18 verses. Listen and see if you don't recognize why this psalm is so appropriate for this Palm Sunday and Holy Week. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved, and you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. But I am a worm and no man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let God deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart melts like wax within me. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a broken piece of clay, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. 
You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. One of the universal realities described throughout the Bible is that everyone suffers. At various points in life, for a wide variety of reasons, every person on the planet will experience the pain of suffering. It's part of our human condition in a, in a world that's fractured and broken by sin. In a perfect world, there would be no problems, no misunderstandings, no conflicts, no greed, no hunger, no loss, no sadness, no grief, no mistakes, no regrets, no disease, no injuries, no death. But we don't live in a perfect world. And it is also true that the experience of suffering can with it, bring with it a sense of, of abandonment when in pain, people often feel alone. They feel cut off, cut off from others around them, cut off from people who are trying to help them, cut off from God. When you're hurting, it's hard to see or feel anything else but that physical or emotional pain. The agony may be so intense that we even lash out at those who are trying to comfort us, lash out at those who love us, even lash out at God. If everybody suffers, then the big question is this. What happens, when it happens, what do you do with your suffering? What do you do with life's hurts? You see, the experience of suffering can be something that is completely pointless and random and meaningless. It's just pain, and that's all it is. All you can do is grit your teeth and hope you can get through it. When I was a kid, our family dentist Uh, didn't believe in using Novocaine. So when I had a cavity, he just drilled and drilled away with no anesthesia at all. My brother and sister and I, we cried. We cried every time we had to go to the dentist. We just had to grip the arms of the chair and try not to bite his fingers. To this day, I'm convinced that was pointless physical suffering and that he was some kind of an escaped Nazi war criminal. But on a larger scale... Our emotional and spiritual suffering can also feel like it's pointless and meaningless. Why does this hurt so much? Why is this happening to me? For people of faith, suffering is really a wedge issue. A wedge issue. By that I mean suffering will either push you closer to God or it will get between you and God and push you farther away from Him. As Hudson Taylor, the great 19th century missionary to China, once said, it does not matter how great the pressure is. What really matters is where the pressure lies, whether it comes between you and God or whether it presses you nearer to his heart. Pointless suffering pushes you away from God, but suffering can do something else. And that's what King David is describing in Psalm 22. He's in the midst of a struggle Can his experience of suffering move from being something that's pointless pain to a deeper sense of purpose as he presses in closer to God? That's his battle. His feelings are very real. He feels forsaken. God seems far away. His cries are unanswered. He's attacked on all sides, picked apart, exhausted, 
but his feelings are not the same as facts. And that's very important to remember. Our feelings, our emotions, they're a roller coaster, up and down and sideways all over the place. Especially when we're in a crisis or in pain, if we follow our emotions in those situations, uh, uh, that's just a train wreck waiting to happen. We misread the situation. We make bad decisions. Our emotions are not a reliable guide. Our emotions don't necessarily reflect reality. And so David felt abandoned. But even though his feelings told him one thing, his faith told him another. There was something deeper in him than just his surface emotions. Deeper than his feelings, his faith was based on facts. The fact that God had not abandoned him, that God had not deserted him. God was there and with him even in his distress. David didn't feel emotionally connected with God, but his relationship with God wasn't totally dependent on his emotions. And so through that dark tunnel, he could see the light of God. God comes to him, and so in the second half of the psalm, the second movement, he can say, You who fear the Lord, praise him, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of his afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Verses 23 and 24. God doesn't abandon his children in times of suffering, even though they may not feel his presence. In 1942, during World War II, the U.S. Army was forced to retreat from the Philippines. Some of the soldiers were captured and made prisoner by the Japanese, and they were forced to march 80 miles through the jungle in what has been called now the Bataan Death March. Those who were too weak or too slow were bayoneted to death or left to die of dysentery or lack of water or were just run over by the trucks as they lay in the road. As many as 10,000 Filipino and American soldiers died in that march. The survivors spent the next three years in a hellish prisoner of war camp. And so by early 1945, only 513 men were still alive. And they were giving up hope. They called themselves the ghosts because they thought that they were unseen by the people back in America. They felt abandoned and forsaken and alone. But the U.S. Army had come back to the Philippines and was winning. But the rumor in the concentration camps was that as they retreated, the Japanese were executing the American POWs, which made them feel even more hopeless. What the prisoners didn't know was that a detachment of 120 army rangers and 200 Filipino guerrillas were on their way behind enemy lines to make a daring rescue. The small raiding party outmaneuvered 8,000 Japanese troops, liberated the camp, and rescued all of those prisoners. Alvy Robbins was one of the rescuers, and he describes how he found one American POW kind of huddled in a darkened corner of his barracks, tears running down his face, muttering, I thought we'd been forgotten. And Abby Robbins responded, No, you're not forgotten. We've come for you. God, in the same way, doesn't abandon us. He can take what seems pointless and turn it to his greater purposes. And faith is what makes that happen. Faith in a big God who loves us and who keeps his promises. Some people think faith means believing what you know isn't true. You know, sort of a blind faith. Well, biblical faith is not like that at all. Biblical faith 
means trusting in what has proven to be reliable in the past. And it's often only in hindsight that you see how God has been at work the whole time. Philip Yancey once wrote, Faith is believing in advance what only makes sense in reverse. Right? You trust this unknown future into the hands of a known God. That's faith. And so it's faith that allows you to move from emotion to action. Faith is what lets you say, you know, I don't know where God is taking me, but I'm packing my bags. That's what happens in Psalm 22. It moves from being a lament, a song of mourning, to a shout of praise and thanksgiving and triumph. And David ends with this tremendous crescendo, verses 30 and 31. Our children's children will serve him. Future generations will be told about the wonders of the Lord. They will proclaim God's righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. But there's a whole other layer to this psalm. Because it turns out that Jesus quotes this psalm while he is being crucified. While he is on the cross, Jesus intentionally invokes Psalm 22. Mark 15, starting with verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offer it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. This didn't happen by accident. Jesus was intentionally quoting Psalm 22. And by doing so, he makes clear that this psalm was also a prophecy about him and the manner of his death. David's words are actually his words. He claims these words for himself. These words that David expressed are actually coming to fulfillment in Jesus' crucifixion. Even though written a thousand years before Jesus was born, even though the psalm was written before crucifixion had even been invented as a form of torture, the psalm vividly describes exactly what happened when Jesus went to the cross. Just, just look at the details sometime. And compare the lament portion of the psalm with what you know, the historical description of Jesus' death in the Gospels, like in Matthew 27 or, or Luke 23 or John 19. The parallels are impossible to ignore. The psalm describes being mocked and scorned, and we see Jesus insulted and beaten and spit upon by the Roman soldiers, surrounded by them like a pack of wild dogs, whipping him, indifferent to his sufferings. When crucified, His hands and feet are pierced, literally. His bones are out of joint, literally, because that's what crucifixion does to the shoulders, slowly dislocates both shoulders, just as the psalmist said. His throat is so parched, and so he asks for something to drink. And amazingly, the psalmist even describes the small detail of how the guards will gamble for his clothes. Verse 18, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Luke 23, 13, they divided his clothes among themselves by throwing dice. 
written a thousand years before it happened. It should send shivers up your spine. But there's something more important about the connection between Psalm 22 and the crucifixion of Jesus than just the description of the physical event. It's that first verse and that last verse of the psalm because Jesus quoted them both. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The big difference between King David saying those words and Jesus saying those words is that Jesus really was forsaken and abandoned by God. David only felt forsaken and abandoned. But Jesus really was abandoned on the cross because it was in those agonizing hours of his death that he was experiencing the judgment of our sin. Jesus had said earlier in the Gospels that he came to lay down his life for us, to give his life as a ransom for us. And this is when he did just that. The Apostle Paul describes this truth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. He took our sin because he was the only one who could. Jesus was the sinless Son of God. He was the only one who didn't have to worry about his own sin, so he was the only one capable of doing doing anything about the sin of the world. He took our place. He became our substitute so that the perfect holiness of God could be satisfied and we could be forgiven. The Apostle John writes it this way in 1 John 2, verse 1. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The atoning sacrifice. Jesus taking our sin upon himself. In theology, we call this substitutionary atonement. Another way to think of the word atonement is to break it into pieces, at one Jesus took our sin so that we could be at one with God. And in doing so, he had to experience the full punishment, the full weight of our sin for the world. Cut off from the Father's love, abandoned by the Father's presence, because a perfect and holy God cannot have anything to do with sin. And so for the first time in all eternity, Jesus is completely cut off from the Father. For the very first time, the perfect union between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit was disrupted. Jesus was alone on the cross. He didn't just feel abandoned by God. He was abandoned by the Father. He experienced hell for us. This is an essential teaching of the Christian faith. On the cross, the perfect Son of God took our sin upon himself so that we might be forgiven. A few weeks ago, we read from the French Confession of 1559, a statement of faith written by John Calvin for the church in Paris. And here's what it says about this. We believe that we are reconciled to God through the unique sacrifice offered by the Lord Jesus on the cross. By that sacrifice, we are justified before God, for we cannot be acceptable to God or receive adoption unless God pardons our sins and covers them over. So we confess that Jesus Christ is our full and perfect cleansing. 
in his death we are fully justified, acquitted of all offenses and iniquities of which we are guilty. We can be delivered by this remedy only. This is an essential teaching of the Christian faith. And it's exactly why we need to support ministries like David Bryant's Proclaim Hope and the Christ Institutes that he's doing in churches all around the world. Because you would think that everyone who says that they're a Christian understands and upholds this essential biblical truth. But you'd be wrong. I think you would be shocked to know how many churches have have watered down the gospel so much that it's barely recognizable as being Christian. Let me me just quickly give you a few examples just from within our own denomination. Uh, The Presbyterian Church USA, a pastor from a large Presbyterian church in Chicago, wrote in his Lenten blog, quote, I think that the reason for Jesus' death is clear. He confronted the political and religious powers of his day with a radically alternative vision, and they executed him because they perceived him as a threat. Why do we need any more than this? The cross is a human tragedy, like so many tragedies we encounter every day. All the theories of what happened when Jesus died are just theories that we can take or leave. In other words, Jesus was just a misunderstood social reformer. Nothing more than that. Or how about this statement by Dr. Dolores Williams? She's an associate professor of theology and culture at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. She said this at a conference sponsored by the PCUSA. And I quote, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. Or another Presbyterian pastor, infamous for rejecting the biblical faith, wrote this. I've been pretty clear that I just don't think, believe, hope, trust, have faith that Jesus rose from the dead. It sounds made up to me. The issue for me is whether or not I have faith in these supernatural events occurring. Well, I don't. And these are pastors, leaders within the denomination who are, who are allowed to continually misrepresent the gospel. Is it any wonder that our denomination is unraveling? And so we need to support ministries like David Bryant's to kind of counteract this very anemic understanding of who Christ is within the church itself. I mean, it's one thing for people outside of the church to not comprehend the fullness of who Jesus is. You'd sort of expect that. But for pastors and church leaders to miss the mark so completely, I mean, it's really mind-boggling. We need to pray for the renewal of the church, for pastors and church leaders to have this fresh awakening to the power of Christ because many of them sincerely don't have a clue who he really is. We need vibrant pastors filled with a passion for the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord. And we need thriving churches that are filled with his sense of presence and grace. But Jesus didn't just quote the first line of Psalm 22 when he hung on the cross. He also quoted the last line of the psalm, verse 31. For he has done it. Or more literally, it is finished. Jesus was living out all of this psalm, not just the first half. The last word from the cross is mission accomplished. That's what we call, why we call it Good Friday, the suffering of Jesus that seemed to many at the time to be so pointless had actually had the greatest purpose of all. Salvation secured, forgiveness 
for all who will receive it. My prayer is that you have received it today. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, may we more fully appreciate during this Holy Week time what your death and your resurrection really mean. The power of God expressed to bring forgiveness for our sin, but at a great cost. Not just your physical sufferings, but the experience of abandonment, of, of hell, because you were taking our penalty upon your own shoulders. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We can't thank you enough for your grace in saving us. And we thank you for your victory cry. It is finished. And that our salvation is secure in you. And it's in your name we pray.